We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome to our Wednesday night Zoom presentation in which we'll be speaking about vaccinations, in particular the COVID vaccination with a Catholic perspective. And we have one of our parishioners here, uh, Pam Acker, to help us with this particular talk. Uh, and she has a new book out, which we'll speak about in just a few moments. But let's begin. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Holy Mary Mother Father, of God, pray for us Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. The Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray, pray for, us. for us. Good Saint Joseph, pray for, pray us. for us. Saint Juan Diego, pray, pray for, us. for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. The SARS-CoV-2 virus, as we know, has governed our lives for the last 10 months. We have been told to fear the virus and protect ourselves by means of lockdowns and isolation, social distancing and masks. But now officials tell us that there is hope just around the corner and that hope is seen in the COVID-19 vaccine. An official government initiative involving the military and the Department of Health and Human Services is charged with speeding up the process of the development and distribution of this vaccine. And it's called Operation Warp Speed. Rush, rush, rush. Operation Warp Speed's goal is to produce and deliver 300 million doses of supposedly safe and supposedly effective vaccines with the initial doses available very, very soon, maybe even Friday, as part of a broader strategy to accelerate the development, manufacturing, and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. The Trump administration, he still is president, <laughs> outlined a goal of vaccinating 100 million people with the COVID-19 vaccine by the end of February. Think about that, 100 million people hope to vaccinated by the end of February, which would be enough to reach all healthcare workers and all of the country's at-risk population. Now, you probably have read some of this. The first vaccine likely to be approved will be a candidate from the pharmaceutical company known as Pfizer. A Food and Drug Administration, FDA advisory panel, is expected to review the vaccine December 10th. That's tomorrow. And emergency approval could happen soon after that, again, even by Friday the 11th. 
There is also an update on the initial shipments of Moderna's version, another pharmaceutical company, Moderna's version of the COVID vaccine, which an FDA advisory panel considered December 17th. Both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines will require two doses for someone to get fully vaccinated. Now, consider this, Pfizer's vaccine requires an ultra cold storage that is literally 75 degrees, I just found out. 75 degrees below Celsius, 75 degrees below zero Celsius. That's minus 103 degrees Fahrenheit. That's colder than the average it is in the South Pole. The kind of cold that could cause hemorrhaging in the lungs if breathing for more than a few breaths. And then, I'm not sure how this works, maybe Pam can help us, is this somehow injected at this temperature? I'm always wondering about that. Well, Moderna's candidate can be stored in a regular refrigerator. Supposedly, there will be some write-up available on the topic of the vaccine. Pam told me it might be 53 pages in length. So you can read that just before you get it. Supposedly there will be that write-up, but I'm not sure if individuals will have the time or the wherewithal to take in helpful or cautionary information. Again, it's all about warp speed. Rush, rush, rush. And we are told that the vaccine could not come in a more crucial time. Hospitals across the U.S. already have a higher load of COVID patients than ever before. Although I don't see any requests of hospital shifts like the USS Comfort, which was asked for back in March. And the country's outbreak is primed to set even, as they tell us, more grim records. This week, Dr. Deborah Burks, we've heard of her, seen her perhaps on television, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, warned this past Sunday that the escalating coronavirus surge is likely to be the most trying event in U.S. history. More than the 1918 influenza, more than World War II. This is not just the worst public health event. This is the worst event that this country will face. Again, this is Dr. Deborah Burks quoting her not just from the public health side. Again, concern, fear, and rush, rush, rush. The authorization of COVID vaccines would also mark a record-breaking time frame. This is important, I'm sure Pam will consider this, a record-breaking time frame from the process that normally would take a decade or more. Let that sink in just a bit. What usually takes 10 years has been done in 10 months. The fastest ever vaccine development for mumps took more than four years and was licensed back in 1967. Last week, the United Kingdom authorized Pfizer's vaccine for emergency use, becoming the first country to do so. President Trump, as well as presidents or past presidents, Obama, Bush, Clinton, said last week that they would all take the coronavirus vaccine publicly so people could see them because polls suggest 
Many Americans are skeptical about getting vaccinated. And people of color, as they say in the news now, who have been disproportionately affected by the virus in particular, appear to be less eager to take it, according to many polls. Asked about skepticism of COVID vaccines on Monday, President Donald Trump's coronavirus vaccine, SAR, told CNBC that he's very concerned about this lack of conformity with the vaccine culture. Over the last several months, the politicization, the context under which the vaccine development has taken place has exacerbated these feelings, this czar of vaccines stated. He urged Americans to keep an open mind. And then he said, quote, listen to the experts that you trust. <laughs> how, how, how have they done over the last 10 months, these good experts, huh? Once you hear the data in full, then make up your mind, he said. Oh yes, as they say today, we believe the science. But what has been the church's response, at least in the United States? Neither, this is a quotation from a bishop, neither the Pfizer nor the Moderna vaccine involved the use of cell lines that originated in fetal tissue taken from the body of an aborted baby at any level of design, development, or production, unquote. This read was the memo read by Bishop Kevin Rhodes for a November 23rd memo who chairs the Bishop's Committee on Doctrine. The Bishop's memo states that some of the testing of the vaccines, this is the concern, some of the testing of the vaccines, however, was done with what is called a quote unquote tainted cell line. But the bishop said that connection between the two vaccines and abortion is relatively remote, not distant. Some are asserting that if a vaccine is connected in any way with tainted cell lines, then it is immoral to be vaccinated with them. Bishop Rhodes then concludes this is an inaccurate portrayal a Catholic moral teaching. Continuing, quote, neither the Pfizer nor the Moderna vaccine involved the use of cell lines that originated from in fetal tissue taken from the body of water baby at any level of design development or production. Remember, that's what the bishop said. They are not completely free, however, from connection to abortion as both the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna made use of a tainted cell line for one of the confirmatory lab tests of their products. We'll ask Pam about that too. The bishops, of course, writing, referring to the HEK293T cell line. But you know, when you think about that, reading it, and I sort of read it twice, it seems to contradict the first statement as those lab tests using aborted fetal cell lines were part of the design, research, and development of that vaccine. So in one line, we're told that there's no connection in regards to the development, research, and production of the vaccines. And yet then we're told that there was testing done in them, which would be part of research and development. At least that's what I think. But there seems to be some confusion Amongst bishops, even consider this tweet by Bishop Joseph Strickland of the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, 
he, he wrote November 16th, quote, Moderna vaccine is not morally produced. Unborn children died in abortions and then their bodies were used as laboratory specimens. That was well put, laboratory specimens. I urge all who believe in the sanctity of life to reject a vaccine which has been produced immorally or has been immorally researched and developed immorally. Bishop Strickland also listed, is also listed as a speaker at a particular online concern about vaccination conference this coming late fall entitled Rejecting the Culture of Death to Embrace the Sanctity of Life. Okay, there's a lot of confusion about this and I need some help and I know that we could benefit a lot from a person who knows much about this topic, who has literally spent much of her life the last number of months researching this topic. Vaccines in general, but also vaccines in regards to COVID-19. We got to think about confusion in regards to morality. Some bishops seem to be at odds here, at least differing thoughts, but also regards to biology, medicine, proper health care for the human being. We need some helpful expert advice. And once again, we have Pam Acker with us. She is a devout Catholic with a master's degree in biology from the Catholic University of America. She worked in the field of vaccine development and has the right combination of knowledge and experience to evaluate the scientific basis for vaccination as currently practiced. And Pam has a new book out. This is what I told you last week, right? There's a new book out available through the colbacecenter.org. Colbay, as in Maximilian Colbay, K-O-L-B-E, center.org. Remember Hugh Owen, a good friend of ours. Um, he is very much a part of, a part of that, uh, developed the founder of that. In her book, Pam's book, it's called Vaccination, a Catholic Perspective. Vaccination, a Catholic Perspective perspective, again, available through colbacenter.org. Pam Acker provides a balanced examination of the whole subject of vaccination, again, from a Catholic perspective, but also, I would say, a human perspective. What's good for man, for human beings? In her book, Pam takes the reader through the history of vaccination while giving a comprehensive introduction. And here's the key, to the marvels of that divinely designed human immune system. What God gave us to fight off some of these viruses. So Pam, let's introduce you. Um, of course, we all know you because you've been on our Zoom <laughs> presentation before and have given some wonderful talks about vaccines in general, but hopefully tonight we can also cover COVID-19 vaccines. So please tell us if you could about your research and about your book, Vaccination, A Catholic Perspective. Sure. Um, so, so it's a little uh, a little difficult to hear myself um, spoken. I'm so highly father, but I'll, I'll do my best here. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I, uh, as many of you know, I, I fell and injured my ankle a couple years ago and, and um, you haven't had uh, correct mobility sort of since then. And, and it was around that time that uh, Hugh Owen approached me and wanted me to write a book on vaccination. So this was all um, at least a year pre-COVID. 
that that uh, this kind of came into being and 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 began to be developed. And so at first, I was just looking at whether the the antibody hypothesis was was something that really held water. That was kind of something that 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 he raised with me first. You know, is this pursuit of producing an antibody response in human beings something that um, are you hearing a feedback loop, Father? Because I'm hearing a feedback loop from from. Uh, you might be hearing a little bit, so. but we're going to have okay. to bear with it. All right, we'll bear with it. Um, all right, free of my very uh, distractible auditory self. Um, <clears throat> so I started looking at the antibody hypothesis, and it, it was sort of intrigued to discover that actually when. It, Vaccination was developed, it was done primarily empirically, and even the, the leading textbook on vaccines, which is Plotkin's Vaccines, it's about yay thick, it's sitting on my shelf at home. They state sort of in the very first essays that, that we really don't know much about how vaccines work in the body. Everything that we know is sort of based on, oh, we'll, we'll try something in human beings, we'll see what happens, or try something in animal models, we'll see what happens, and then we'll, we'll kind of develop our theory based on that. There's not a lot of, um, basic science research that's that's been done to support how this is supposed to produce an immune response to the human body. And I knew this from my, my days back actually doing vaccine development. My, my primary investigator, Dr. Um, Vinagala Rao, used to be very upset being a, a virologist himself that it's seemed like you, you just sort of put some things together with vaccines, threw, threw them at the wall and saw what stuck. We were working at the time on developing an HIV vaccine so when I entered the lab, actually, the, the focus was on anthrax and plague in, in the events of possible bioterrorist attacks. And as a former military breath, that, that appealed to me. Um, but when I, when I uh, actually got accepted into the lab, there was a big push to develop this HIV vaccine, um, which was being funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we had just uh, qualified for an initial grant, and we needed to do a certain amount of research and development before we would be able to apply for a secondary grant, which was probably 10 times the, the initial grant. And so kind of all hands on deck were pushed over to the HIV project. And um, that that meant to me too. So if, <laughs> it's, it's interesting that all of this is, is being done in HEK293 cells because those cells, um, have shaped my life for better or for worse because about eight months or nine months into working on the HIV project, there was a lab meeting where we were asked to all kind of pitch in on one particular aspect of the project. And I had already made sure that the cell lines that I was working with were ethical because what motivated me to do vaccine research in the first place was wanting to find an ethical alternative to the use of aborted fetal cells in the development of vaccines. And uh, the the researcher whose corner of the project it was, was doing research in HEK293 cells. And I said, Elise, what does HEK stand for? And she told me human embryonic kidney. And the bottom sort of fell out of my world uh, that day because in, instead of finishing my PhD, I resigned my position in the lab and transferred to a different lab because I couldn't face going into the lab every day knowing that I was working with aborted fetal cells, knowing I was doing exactly what I had come to Catholic University of America to fight. Um, so I, I'm pretty, pretty passionate about the issue of aborted fetal cells being used in vaccines. So that was another aspect of the book. It deals with the, the morality of, of that practice and whether, whether or not it's moral. And we talked 
a few um, a few months ago, Father, about the the Pontifical Academy for Life documents and how the the wording isn't super clear um, in terms of what it, what allows and, and doesn't allow Catholics to do. So it sort of gives permission to not use the vaccine and sort of gives permission to use the vaccine. And they were speaking specifically of the MMR vaccine, the rubella component is produced in aborted fetal cells. And there've been a number of, of very good priests of which you know, a lot of our parishioners are probably familiar who've spoken um, against that analysis and said it was not sufficiently nuanced. And of course, Father Ripperger is one of the main ones that, that does that, but also Father Wolf and Father Michael Copenhagen. And their sermons are available on Children of God for Life. So it's cogforlife.org. And uh, Father Ripperger actually just gave an interview with the census fidelium on the morality of the COVID vaccines very recently. So some of the stuff that we're going to touch on, I'm going to touch on a little bit tonight is, is quoting directly from Father Ripperger. So um, I'm going to try not to speak about my pay grade and without using his words, since he's a lot more qualified to make those moral distinctions than I am. So I hope that answered your question about uh, just background. Um, the book also covers uh, some uh, there's a chapter on the safety of vaccines, there's a chapter on just ethics of vaccines, so not just the aborted fetal cells, but ethical issues in vaccine manufacture and uh, marketing. And, and then at the end, uh, a chapter, and we discussed this too again a few months ago, Father, what, what, uh, what alternatives are open to us if for whatever reason we don't vaccinate with vaccines that are unethical, or we just decide that the biology of the paradigm is, is not something that, uh, that's really safe or effective. So that's a little bit about my book. And, but you wanted to talk about COVID vaccines. So. Sure, but I, I guess uh, maybe just reemphasize, if you could, that particular aborted fetal cell line, human embryo kidney cells, that because there was the generation of the vaccines through the use of these cells, this was objectionable, obviously, to you as a Catholic, but also as, 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 as a person who studied, you know, biology too. This is, this is, this, this is, a, this is against natural law even. But right. what if, but would it also, what if it was just experimented in? I mean, it seems like Moderna and Pfizer at least did some, how did they, what did they do? Did they sort of, these new COVID vaccines, did they, experiment within, they, maybe they didn't generate the vaccine from, but they, they, did they experiment within these human embryo kidney fetal line cells? Sure. So there's, there's some confusion about um, what it means for vaccines to be developed in aborted fetal cells, you know, to, sort of to begin with. And the AstraZeneca is a, a good example. So AstraZeneca is developing a COVID-19 vaccine and they're actually um, culturing a virus they're using an adenovirus vector, which means they're, they're taking a, a virus that normally infects humans and they're altering it so that it's delivering um, active ingredient for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the virus that's been associated with COVID-19. And they're, um, they're actually culturing that adenovirus in HEK293 cells. So these cells are being plated out in Petri dishes in the laboratory. They're being infected with the virus. The virus is then being harvested out of the cells. Now, when you do this, you end up with an unavoidable amount of contamination um, in, in your vaccine preparation anytime you, you produce vaccines in cells. So this is one of the, the reasons why um, some vaccines that are produced in, in chicken cells, which are moral, 
people can have allergic reactions to them because eggs are, are somewhat allergenic. And if you, if you are developing the vaccine in a chicken egg, there's going to be some chicken egg proteins that end up in your final vaccine preparation. So in the AstraZeneca vaccine, there's actually human um, proteins and human DNA contaminants that end up in the final COVID-19 vaccine. So um, this is probably the most extreme example of uh, the way that aborted fetal cells are used in vaccine development uh, because the vaccine is produced directly in the cells and the vaccine itself contains remnants of those cells. So um, there's obviously that's you know, morally problematic, but you, you were just speaking to sort of violating natural law and even being biologically problematic. Um, Dr. Teresa Deicher from Sound Choice Pharmaceuticals has done a tremendous amount of research and she has noticed a, a global trend of when you, you start using more aborted fetal cell vaccines, you see um, a rise in incidence of autism in a population. So she's noted this in the US, she's noted it in the UK, she's noted it in Sweden and some other European countries. And she's actually provided a reasonable biological mechanism to explain why that happens. Because if you have short fragments of DNA, those short fragments of DNA can actually be used to transform cells. So that, that means to take um, foreign DNA and to insert it into the host cell's DNA. And since your DNA is similar to the cell that's being derived from this, or the DNA that's being derived from this aborted fetal cell, it can undergo what's called homologous recombination, where the DNA from the fetal cell lines up with your DNA and they just kind of swap out. And so when they swap out, your DNA gets removed, the aborted fetal cell DNA gets inserted, and you end up with probably most likely a mutation for a couple of reasons. It may not insert in exactly the right place. And when these cell lines are modified, these cells are modified so that they can be grown, um, not entirely indefinitely, but somewhat indefinitely in the laboratory, they're, they're mutated um, very significantly. And this is to knock out any genes that would cause them to, to senesce or, or grow old, but also genes that, that um, govern their ability to grow when they're in contact with other cells. And so most cells um, won't, uh, won't sort of overgrow just touching um, other cells on, the, um, on, on a sufficient number of sides, but <coughs> cancer cells actually will do that. Cancer cells will keep growing even when they, they're, they're getting the signal line being touched in too many places. Um, so there's, there's some concern that, that some of these mutations could be potentially um, associated with developing cancer, but there's also concern that because in, in some cases, autism seems to be associated with hundreds of uh, de novo mutations, mutations that were never seen in the parents of the individual who's autistic, that this is possibly how these de novo mutations are entering the, the cells of the, the individual who's being, um, who has autism. It's, it's through the aborted fetal DNA contaminants in the vaccine. So I use some jargony terms there, Father, hopefully that made some sense. Um, right, so that, that AstraZeneca, so, that's another pharmaceutical yes. company, right? And they're, yeah, so that's, they're coming out eventually with their own version of COVID-19. Right. Now, now what I had, had read recently on the, the Children of God for Life website, their, their trials are sort of suspended at the moment because they've had some, some serious adverse uh, reactions, which could honestly be because they're being produced in aborted fetal cells. Um, so, so what Pfizer and Moderna are doing is slightly different. And um, Moderna is slightly more involved than Pfizer. So I'll explain Pfizer first. Um, so what Pfizer did is they developed an mRNA vaccine and there's loads of questions about mRNA vaccines 
And I don't actually feel equipped to answer really any of them, Father, because there, there have been no mRNA vaccines that have been used in human populations. So if you start talking about side effects of mRNA vaccines, you're, you're, you're talking completely speculatively. Like we literally have no idea what, what would happen if you inject mRNA of, of a pathogen into the human body, especially, and there's especially concerns that have been raised um, because a number of vaccines have been found to be contaminated with retroviruses. And, and that doesn't mean the viruses came from the 60s and, and you know, they wear disco pants or anything, but it, it means that the, the virus itself works in such a way that it takes its genetic information, it, it reverse transcribes it. So it takes an RNA message, it turns it into DNA, and then it inserts that DNA into the cells of the, the host that it has infected. So this is what HIV does. Um, and HIV, uh, it, it's, it copies its RNA as DNA. It takes that DNA, it inserts it in your T cells, and then that viral infection can remain latent for a long period of time until it becomes activated through some environmental trigger, and then you develop, eventually develop AIDS. Um, I know there's some controversy about HIV, AIDS, and how that's all developed, but again, that was what I was working on a vaccine for. So I've read a number of papers, and this seems to be the, pretty well the consensus of, of how this um, disease progresses. But uh, if, there's, if there's a retrovirus contaminant in an mRNA vaccine for COVID, that retrovirus, the, the proteins that are there with that retrovirus could contribute to the mRNA of the, the COVID-19 vaccine being reverse transcribed into DNA and that DNA then being inserted into your cells. And now you have a latent COVID-19 COVID-19 infection instead of actually being vaccinated against it. So, so there's, I mean, again, that's speculative, um, but it's, there's a plausible biological mechanism for this. This could be um, an extremely dangerous way to do this. And, and it could also, there's some concern, and this has been published in the literature as well. There's some concern that the, the, the mRNA, since it's genetic information that's going to be present in your body, if you're infected with um, wild type a, a coronavirus at the same time, whether that's SARS-CoV-2 or a different coronavirus, you could actually have genetic recombination in your body and it could create a more virulent strain of the virus. So I know I went a little bit off topic there with the, right. the mRNA stuff, um, but it, those are important um, considerations that kind of, that, that, that need to be discussed. If we're talking about deploying a completely novel vaccine that, that you know, we've taken 10 months to develop, and has, has never been tested for, for more than you know, a few weeks in human beings. We, we just have no idea what the long-term ramifications of this could be. Um, but what, what Pfizer did with their, their mRNA vaccine is at, a, at some point in their development, um, they, they tested that vaccine in human cells. So they, they tested it probably to see if the mRNA would be taken up, probably to see um, how, how uh, you know, effective it would be at actually delivering the, would, would those cells then, after they took the mRNA up, would they make the spike protein? So effectively what you're doing with an mRNA vaccine is you're, you're giving your body the genetic information and then your body's manufacturing the vaccine based on that genetic information. So that could also lead to problems with persistence in the body. Like we don't know how long these antigens are gonna persist in the body and how strong of an immune reaction we're going to have to them. So that's another sort of variable we don't know. So these, um, when this vaccine was initially tested in cell culture before it began to be tested in humans, 
it was tested in the HEK293 cells. So the vaccine is not produced in those cells. Um, mRNA can be produced synthetically in a test tube. And it's, it's probably actually cheaper to do it that way than to do it in a regular cell and, and purify it out and have all of the unnecessary contaminants. But again, you know, it, in this race for the cure, um, Pfizer's, Pfizer's not being super um, forthcoming about exactly how their vaccine is being made. So, or exactly how it's um, performing in lab tests. But, but there, there is documentation that it has been tested in HEK293 cells before it was tested in human beings. So this is a, a more remote uh, participation in, in those cells. So you could certainly say that uh, AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson's version, if they ever come up with one, which they were hoping to, are produced, let's say, via these aborted fetal cells. Yeah, they're actually produced in the aborted fetal cells. The aborted fetal cells are basically the, the factories to manufacture the vaccine components. They're and that back. would be to cooperate in a more formal way if, if to take a well, vaccine. The, 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 I think it's still material cooperation. If you, if you are producing them, selling them, researching, right. developing them, that yeah, would be a that, that would be formal. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the Moderna and Pfizer are not produced in the fetal cells, aborted they're fetal tested. cells, rather they're than tested. tested within them. So, would you find that, I mean, even though it's a bit more remote, obviously, would that, as a biologist, if you were working in a lab that was doing that, would you find that objectionable? Um, yeah, I, I, I would. I mean, I, I keep thinking sort of about, you know, we, we object to, you know, testing that was done on, on people in concentration camps, you know, in, in Nazi Germany. Um, and, and, you know, people frown on using data from those scientific experiments because of the, the unethical way that it was done. You know, if you're, if you're gonna just sort of put somebody in freezing water, allow them to die and see how long it takes, um, you know, that, that, that's an incredibly unethical way to, to obtain research. If you're, if you're testing these things in aborted fetal cells, you're participating in, in um, a number of different evils. You know, so the evil that most people think about is the, the original abortion, which happened in the 1970s. Okay, so we're, we're 50 years out from that original abortion. Um, and so some people think, well, there's been sufficient amount of time, you know, we're really kind of removed from this situation. Because in, as Father Ripperger explained in his interview, you know, there, there is a temporal component to this, you know, so if you, if you um, if you steal a lawnmower from somebody and, and he's died and his kids have died and, you know, you know, you're now the third or fourth generation who's got this lawnmower, um, you're not actually obligated to give it back to, to the great grandkids who never owned the lawnmower in the first place. There is a, a certain um, point in time where, where restitution sort of no longer needs to be made. But because this is, this is living tissue, this is, this is part of this individual, this baby's body, and, and as we know, your phone is ringing, brother. <laughs> as, as we know, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the soul, the body is the form or the soul is the form of the body. So, so our body is not something that we live in. It is, it is a part of who we are. Right. Um, so this, this, these cells that are, are growing in, in culture, in laboratories all around the world are, are truly a part of this individual. This is, this is not, um, 
this is not sort of buried in the past in the 1970s. This individual is still being trafficked. His remains are still being desecrated. And the only appropriate thing to do with all of these cells is to bury them because we can't make restitution to the baby who was murdered, but we can make restitution to God. I think that would be a very good thing to emphasize. The fact that these are the remains of a human being. Right. That is still unburied, not at rest. That's a very good. That's a very good way to. And he's being trafficked to this day. That's a, that's a that's a that's a perfect way of putting it. So, I would find, and you would find, even that objectionable. Even if it's more yes. remote, yes. it's still objectionable ultimately. And we should protest no matter what. Right. Now, granted, all of those things that, that desecration of remains and human trafficking, those are also grave sins. I mean, it wasn't just the original murder. Right. And, and I'm taking all this from Father Ripperger and Father Michael Copenhagen, so I, I didn't, I didn't right. come up with that. <laughs> but that, 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 that's very well put from, from either you or, or from them. It's just, a, and I guess, um, you know, obviously we do, and we explained this a few months back when we had our other talks, is that in a sense, some vaccine options do not provide at least easily illicit vaccine. And so people are almost under coercion. Um, right. And, you know, obviously, they should protest, they should object to these particular vaccines. But then they have to think about whether or not there's a grave cause. So can we talk about that for a little bit? It seems that one is allowed to even participate in some remote way with these objectionable things if there's a serious grave cause. Now, so what, what would they mean by that, this serious grave concern? I mean, I mean is chickenpox, for example, which I think, is it, is it right to say chickenpox vaccine is, is generated from or produced from aborted uh, fetal cell lines? Yes. Yeah, the chickenpox vaccine and the shingles vaccine are both made for Would you consider that a grave concern for the regular family that has young children that might get chickenpox as part of a rite of passage even, it seems? Yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't consider any of the, the common childhood diseases to be of, of grave concern to, to justify um, using an aborted fetal cell line. You know, I was, I, I'm old enough that uh, I had the chicken pox when I was a kid. Um, it was uncomfortable, but in, in individuals below, I think, and it, it, the, the age sort of depends on which source you're citing, but certainly in individuals below 13, 14 years old, um, chicken pox doesn't tend to have any complications. It might be uncomfortable, it might be itchy, you might need to take an oatmeal bath, which certainly wasn't very pleasant, but um, you know, you, you don't, necessarily run the risk of severe complications. Now, as you get older, um, you can run the risk of severe complications. And, and I know, and some other parishioners also know a young man who was hospitalized and nearly died um, with a chickenpox infection in his early 20s. I think you also know him, Father. Um, but uh, he most likely would not have contracted that infection in his early 20s if the disease was still circulating normally in the population, he would probably have contracted as a child when his body was designed to handle that kind of, uh, of immune assault and, and he would have resolved it. His body would have been trained appropriately. And then also with, with chickenpox, we're seeing um, a, a, an increased incidence in the, in the um, uh, number of people who are getting shingles, which is much more painful. It's caused by the same virus. 
And we're seeing a lowered age of incidence of shingles as well. We're even seeing some, some very young people get shingles. And normally shingles would have been, you know, sort of when you were, you were grandparents age or, or older. And, and now we're seeing it sometimes even, even in children who are being vaccinated. And so the, the we, having, you know, sort of not eliminated, but, but dramatically reduced the amount of chickenpox virus circulation in the wild, we've actually caused a problem, you know, both for, for people like this young man who contracted it in his 20s, but also for individuals who are now more susceptible to shingles, because if the virus was circulating naturally in the population, and these individuals were taking care of their children um, who were, who had chicken pox, or, you know, their neighbor kids had chicken pox, or, you know, whatever, but usually caring for your own children, you actually get re-exposed to the virus, and it serves kind of as a natural booster. So your, your immune system is reactivated to say, oh, hey, you, you know, you remember this, this um, you know, varicella zoster virus that you had when you were a kid, like you need to be prepared to maybe combat that again, because it, it does actually sort of remain resident in your body. That's why you end up with, with um, shingles again, potentially, and can hang out in your nerve cells. So it, it, it's, it, you know, the natural boosting process that was present in the, in, in the environment before actually kept us safer than vaccination. And also, you know, shingles, while painful, you know, I, I don't think that generally comes with um, uh, life-threatening complications. Although I'm open to correction on that one. I haven't done as much research about shingles as I have about chickenpox. But I guess what we could say is, it comes to question now, uh, I think bishops in the United Kingdom, Catholic bishops, have, con have, have considered COVID-19 of grave concern. Um, so I guess your thoughts about that, and I think with sort of these things to add, is it a grave concern for the entire population universally or just certain segments? And does it seem to be of a grave concern enough that there should be universal vaccinations, which they seem to be asking for? If they're going to have 300 million vaccines available by a certain time next spring or whatever, that suggests they're going to vaccinate the entire population, including children who, is it a grave concern for, for, for a 12 year old? So maybe you could, and maybe even include that, if you looked up that Pfizer executive, that uh, retired Pfizer executive, I'm not sure if you did or not, about his comments about that. So go ahead if yes. you could. Um, all right, so, uh, so there, there's there's several different facets uh, to that question, you know. So there there's there's a, a concern of you know how grave is COVID nineteen, um, but there's also a concern of how grave is the risk of receiving the vaccine, um, because you know you're you're you are obligated under natural law to you know do do what you can to to and, and it's a natural instinct as well to do what you can to preserve your body and to 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 knowingly inject yourself with something hazardous or, or, or containing toxic chemicals, um, it could potentially be, you know, immoral. Um, probably not. I don't, I don't think necessarily gravely immoral. Again, I'd have, you'd have to like ask Father Ritzberger, um, on that one, but he did, he did, he does talk about this a little bit in his interview. So, um, is, is COVID-19 sufficiently grave? Um, the, the data that I've heard most recently seems to maintain that, that, you know, at most COVID-19 results in, in death about 1% of the time. Um, I think this is slightly better than the flu, um, which is I think like 1.4% of the time. So if, if we're not 
considering you know normal seasonal flu a grave cause then by comparison COVID-19 would not be a grave cause either now there's there's some concern that that it might be um uh far more far more of a concern in people who are um above a certain in a certain age bracket and it also be might be of of much greater concern in people who have comorbid conditions so uh, even Father Ripperger says, you know, on an individual case by case basis, that's something that can be evaluated. You know, if you if you're in your 70s or 80s and you have a variety of comorbid conditions, you know, and your mortality rate is, you know, 25% if you catch this virus, then you know that would potentially be sufficiently grave cause um, to to receive to receive a vaccine that was made in aborted fetal cells, if that vaccine is the only vaccine that is available. So they're, they're um, I mean, if, if people are concerned and they, they want to be able to be vaccinated for COVID-19, you know, as Catholics, really you are obligated to push for the development of ethical vaccines. And, um, you know, it, it is, it really is above my pay grade to say whether, you know, you should, you should jump on it when it first comes out, if you are that concerned or, or whether you, you, you know, you might want to wait and see if there's, there's a more ethical vaccine candidate, candidate in the wings there. But certainly in terms of, of children, um, I think the death rate is pretty negligible. Um, I feel like more children have died from wearing masks than have died from the coronavirus, but I haven't, again, I haven't followed all of those statistics super closely. Um, so uh, I don't, I don't think that COVID-19 amounts to a grave concern as, as a biologist and, um, uh, and, it, you know, from Father Ripperger's interview, he didn't seem to think it amounted to a grave concern either. So, ex except, you know, possibly for those individuals who are in extremely high risk categories. Did you get a chance to look at that uh, report given by some person connected to John Hopkins uh, University regarding oh yes the death rates you know in general month by month right for the United States it doesn't seem to be that much different from years past right and and I do actually have that paper and I don't know if you want to you know, maybe send that out on the parish email list, Father, just so people can access the paper and the and the article that you forwarded me as well. Um, but but you're quite right. There was a, a John a study done by John Hopkins um, where they looked at um, mortality rates in I believe 2018, 2019, and, and 2020, and you know mortality overall mortality rate in the U.S. was not affected at all by the advent of COVID-19. And what they saw, interestingly, in, in 2020 is that diseases that, that they would predict would, would have increased, so heart disease, for example, um, pneumonia, uh, things like that, those diseases had um, fallen off. So the, 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 the incidence of people dying from those diseases had decreased and they had decreased, you know, collectively at the same, um, in the same numbers that, that the, the COVID death had increased or appeared, I guess, on the scene. So the net deaths overall in the U.S. hasn't really changed since the advent of COVID-19. So that's, that's a, sort of another um, data point that would suggest that, that actually this isn't something that's, that's grave concern. There's going to be a, a certain percentage of the population that dies every year. Um, 
life always ends in death. <laughs> There's, there is no alternative option. So um, somebody's always going to be dying from something. So, so we talked about this again, I think a little bit before where if you're trying to eliminate all, all possible deaths, even all possible deaths from any given cause, that's, that's really an unrealistic and, and um, you know, it's an unrealistic expectation and it also just kind of shows our, our uncomfortableness with the idea of death, I think, in our, in our modern um, society. Yeah, so I think that when, when I read it, I just read like a synopsis of it or something. It seemed that mm -hmm. um, the, the, the sort of the, 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 the drastic drop in certain deaths 2020 in regards to heart disease in comparison to other years. So it, it seems that people are dying with COVID a lot of times, as opposed to dying actually directly from oh, COVID. COVID. So right. The heart yeah. disease issue is drastically less this year, but maybe that's because COVID-19 um, uh, sort of uh, cause of death has been put on various uh, 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 coroner's reports. You know, yes. person has COVID-19 when it, maybe it was actually more attributed to heart disease or some other malady that the person had, a comorbidity as they, they all, they're always saying. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's been discussed, I think, since the very beginning of, of the pandemic is, is potentially um, going on. And I, I'm actually um, employed part-time by by um, two physicians or nurse anesthetist and a, and a nurse practitioner. Um, but, you know, they, they have confirmed um, from, from actual personal experience that um, hospitals actually get a 15% larger um, payout from insurance if the death is coded as COVID-19. Um, so anybody uh, who just sort of, you know, looks at that statistic, you know, there, there, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, dollars there in insurance payouts and, um, 15% is a, a rather large increase and, and your average person, you know, if somebody tests positive for COVID, it's, it's very easy to just say, okay, well, they, they died, they died um, from COVID-19, you know, that's, that's a technicality tech, and nobody's technically lying, you know, because they, they did, ha did test positive for COVID-19, but you know, it's, it's a way to, to maximize the, the insurance benefits that's being mm -hmm. received. Um, so that's, that's, that's skewing the numbers. Another thing that's skewing the numbers is, is the, the test that they use to diagnose people with um, SARS-CoV-2 infection is, is a, it's, a, it's an RT-PCR test. So PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. And this is, this is something I've used in the laboratory. You know, this is designed to take a very, very tiny amount of DNA and to amplify it so that you can actually, um, you know, do something with it in the laboratory potentially, although you have the, you know, potential mutations if you do that, but also um, and just to kind of uh, just make a lot more DNA than, than you had to begin with. So it's not really designed and it really shouldn't be used to, to test for the presence of, of DNA in, um, in individuals in a way that makes it equivalent to sort of a viral load or viral titer or something like that. You know, we're not actually isolating the virus from these folks. Um, we're just seeing if there's you know, minuscule fragments of DNA that remain in their bodies. And so even, I mean, and I was reading an article from the New York Times, Father. Now this was back in, 
August or September. And then I read another article in December that's basically saying only, only now, like only in the last week, has anybody in the U.S. actually demanded that, you know, these, these PCR tests, um, it be reported how, how many cycles they're using. So this is, this is where, you know, the explanation is going to get slightly technical, but if you're, if you're doing PCR, you start with, you know, you can, you can think of it this way. You don't necessarily start with two copies of the DNA, but if you only have one fragment of DNA, you start with two copies, one on each side, and, and you, you replicate those copies. After one round, you have four. After the next round, you have eight. After the next round, you have 16. And so it's, it's an exponential um, increase. So by the time you get up to 30, 35, 40 rounds, you're, you're, the sensitivity of your, your, your test is, is, um, it, it's going to pick up if there's, if there's even like the slightest amount of DNA in there. And so they were, they were running these PCR tests at, at roughly 40 cycles, um, in some places. And it's not, it hasn't been standardized. So some people might be running 40 cycles. Some people might be running 45. Some people might be running 35, you know, and I'm not, I'm not as quick on my feet at, at math as, as some of our parishioners, um, are, are, so I, I can't, I can't tell you what the magnitude, uh, difference is there, but it's, 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 it's orders, orders, multiple orders of magnitude, um, different in terms of, of the amount of DNA that you're going to generate at the end of, of those different runs. And so if, if we don't know how many cycles are being run, we don't actually know how sensitive the test is. And in, in tests that are being run around 30, I think it's 35, 40, it might be 40, 45 cycles. Um, they were, they were then testing people to see if they had any quantifiable viral load in their body and 90% of people did not. So all that tech ease <laughs> to say that um, the, the test that we're using is far too sensitive the way that we're using it. And so if it is picking up on, on SARS, uh, SARS-CoV-2 DNA, it's, it's picking up on, on that DNA in a lot of people where, where it doesn't matter. They've either cleared the infection, they have a subclinical asymptomatic infection where they are, they're incapable of infecting somebody else because they simply do not have enough virus particles in their body for that to even matter. Because it's not like, it's not like if I, if I sneeze on you or cough on you and a single virus particle gets on you, Father, then you're gonna get SARS-CoV-2. That's not how that works. It, there's, there's, well, I know, right? So there's a there's a sort of an equilibrium dynamics like at a certain point your immune system has to get overloaded so that the virus can continue to replicate and that can actually cause disease symptoms so um if i don't have enough viruses in my body to 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 you know actually sneeze enough on you to to make you sick then then there's absolutely no reason for me to be quarantined and if i'm testing positive and then being required to quarantine for 14 days and you know you're doing this nine out of ten people don't have a sufficient viral load to infect anybody, you're just locking down a bunch of people who don't need to be locked down. And, you know, anecdotally, you know, this is, this is secondhand, but, you know, I'm sure several of us could say this. I, I know someone who knows someone who signed up for, for a, a COVID test, you know, went home because the, the testing place closed before they got to this person, how whatever number they were in line, and they got a letter in the mail saying they were positive for COVID. It, like, there's also fraud, <laughs> you know, just flat out fraud going on. So, right. so we have really no idea what the actual number of cases are. We have no idea what the actual death rate is, and and it, you know, none of none of this is is 
at this point verifiable. There's been so many studies that have been published that are not peer reviewed, that pe people are, are posting things and retracting things and posting things and retracting things. It's like, you know, what what sense can the average person make of it? I, I can't even make sense of this. And, you know, I worked in a virology lab. So, sorry, that was my rant. <laughs> sure. I guess, I guess what, what would you say about, uh, I mean, obviously, the vaccination seemed to be, um, well, let's go back just for, for a second. I want, to, I want to talk about therapeutics in a bit, but let's go back just to the fact that this vaccine, again, brought to us within 10 months, and you said it was a type of vaccine or a method of developing one that had, which is, which is pretty novel. So if you could, again, just reemphasize the, the newness of this type of vaccine and the rush to get it, that alone, would you consider a reason never to take this vaccine? Just, just not even considering the objectionable moral part. Right. So, yeah. So even if this vaccine were being produced, you know, in, in monkey cells, well, I, I'm suspicious of monkey cells, you know, to begin with, because, um, there's potentially some cross reactivity between simian viruses and, and human cells. Um, and so there's, there's some evidence, you know, and, and I haven't investigated this to the nines or anything, but there is some evidence that simian viruses have entered the human population through, um, the, the polio vaccine in particular, which is cultured in monkey cells. So, so I, I, I kind of <laughs> just a little wary of, of, uh, contaminants across the board. Um, even in, in vaccines that have been used for years. Um, but certainly, it, it, you know, in a vaccine that's been rushed to production, there's, there's been a couple of, you know, historical uh, episodes, if you will, of vaccines being rushed to production. And, and you know, you, you sent out something that I wasn't aware of, Father, um, back, back when your first email came out about vaccines and, and you forwarded the documentary about the 1976 swine flu vaccine. So this was another, it, it was sort of eerily similar to what we're going through now. You know, some, um, some soldiers in Fort Dix were diagnosed with swine flu. Um, one of them died. Now he died most likely because he was sick and, and he got out of bed and had to go on a forced march. And, um, you know, that, that's more likely to kill you than, than the flu actually is. And so uh, there, was a, there was a general panic and the U.S. pushed through a swine flu vaccine. Now we had been doing, you know, sort of seasonal flu vaccines at this point. Um, I'm not sure, you know, obviously not it, to the level that we do them now where everybody's sort of expected to be vaccinated every year. When I was a kid in the eighties, you know, certainly everybody wasn't vaccinated every year for the flu, but flu vaccines did exist back in the seventies. And the, the swine flu one was, was, it was rushed through, I believe it was um, April, uh, production was begun on October 1st. The first vaccines were, were being delivered. Um, and that's actually, it's actually like in my, my book, which is right here in front of me. So maybe I better look that up while I'm talking, but, um, the, 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 the rate of production of this was, was alarming. Um, and as you said, the, the quickest vaccine we've ever produced that's currently being used in, um, in individuals is, is the mom's vaccine, which took about four years. So the, um, I can't find it. 
I can't read and talk at the same time. I mean, it's not like they're both that's okay, but, but that's, that's okay, just yeah. a reminder. So the, the legislature pushing for vaccines was signed into effect in April and vaccinations began on October 1st. So that's an even shorter turnaround time than we're seeing right now. Now, um, these vaccines led to uh, an increase in cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, an autoimmune uh, neurological disorder. It um, involves, it, you know, potential paralysis, loss of use of limbs. It can involve facial paralysis. Um, and uh, it, it also uh, resulted in an increased incidence in, in narcolepsy. So when you just sort of, you know, fall asleep randomly in the middle of, of, of things that you really shouldn't fall asleep doing, it can be very dangerous to, to, to develop that condition. And the, um, you know, the pandemic actually never materialized. You know, the swine flu was never found in, in outside of these soldiers at Fort Dix, um, but quite a few Americans were vaccinated. And then there was, there were quite a few that, that claimed damages for developing these neurological disorders. And it was the US government that sort of, you know, footed the taxpayers really that footed the bill for, for you know, compensating these people for their injuries um, because it was the government that backed pushing the vaccine out so quickly. And so um, we didn't really do well on um, that time that <laughs> we pushed out, rushed out a vaccine. And, and far more recently, um, the, uh, the Gardasil vaccine for the HPV virus was fast tracked and it was approved for, um, uh, by the FDA in, in six months. And uh, subsequent uh, trials were conducted on girls in India. Um, this is another ethical issue with the vaccine manufacturer. Often they'll take their trials overseas, they'll do them in Africa, they'll do them in India, which is um, unethical for a number of reasons. It's, it's very difficult to obtain informed consent when you're dealing um, in populations, you know, kind of the poorest of the poor. Uh, overseas, you don't necessarily, you know, speak the language particularly well that, you know, you're, you're, you're operating in and you're administering your, your vaccine information. And it's very difficult to obtain real informed consent. Um, and then also you're experimenting then on people who tend to have nutritional deficiencies and, and other potential serious health problems that could, could make them uh, more susceptible to adverse reactions. So Gardasil was tested in India. It resulted in, uh, in 30, about 30,000 girls, resulted in a handful of deaths, about six deaths, and in um, a rate of other adverse reactions where these girls have um, fibromyalgia type conditions, um, like severe fatigue, they have um, early, early onset menstruation and, and Gardasil has actually been associated with um, uh, premature ovarian failure and can cause um, infertility, permanent infertility in, in women that, um, that have received the, the third dose. Usually it's, it's in women that have received all three doses. Um, and, you know, this, this was not, you know, this probably would have been identified. It's been identified, you know, Gardasil was, it was released in I think 2006 um, was when it was was when it was approved. Um, uh, da, 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 da. I think it was in 2006. So so this isn't this isn't that long ago, and we now have data, you know, that indicates, you know, sort of doing a, a retrospective study, um, you know, that that women who are in a cohort of of you know, individuals who haven't received the Gardasil vaccine, the average woman has about a 67% chance of having been, having conceived and, and born a child. And the average woman who's received three doses of Gardasil has about a 20% chance of having conceived and, and born a child. And that may be in part 
be due to, to, to lifestyle differences between people who, who choose to get this vaccine and don't choose to get it because um, you know, there, there are other kind of um, uh, things that go along with it. If you think you're protected from certain kinds of diseases, you, you tend to engage in riskier behavior and those behaviors can also come with potential um, side effects of infertility. But I, I think some of it is due to the vaccine itself. And, and we know this in, in you know, under, under 10, 15, 20 years, um, that, that this is a significant problem. And, you know, if, if, if the vaccine had been properly safety tested, we may have known it before the vaccine was released. And now we wouldn't have, you know, been pushing Gardasil on all of these young girls who now are, are permanently damaged. Um, so I guess continuing just quickly with, with the notion of injuries. So there's been, obviously we talked about the swine flu back in 78 or 76, I forget the year. Um, and the injuries that that caused, the injuries uh, regarding Gardasil, what that might have done, um, injuries perhaps uh, hurting uh, the autoimmune, autoimmune dis disorders, uh, issues of perhaps, uh, aut there's, there's a number of things that could be yes. directly caused. So what about this notion of COVID? Now, we don't know yet because, heck, we just took 10 months to put together this vaccine. And uh, like you said, it's a novel approach to a vaccine. Um, but then I read, and I think you might've read too, that they're telling women, don't become with child. <laughs> um, so they're already yeah. putting out warnings. I mean, it, major warnings regarding yeah. these women who might become pregnant. So have you read any other things in connection with that or any other possible warnings or cautionary notes regarding either Moderna or Pfizer's uh, vaccine option for COVID? Sure. So there's there's two two things um, about Pfizer's vaccine. So the Pfizer's vaccine is actually, um, you know, licensed for emergency use in the UK right now, if that's the right word to say, licensed. Um, but they, they've put out a, a, a sort of some guidelines um, about about uh, about this vaccine, and it's um, one of those guidelines. Is, it's guideline um, four point six in this document that's that's posted on the uh, the um, uh, UK's you know main governmental website. They they say that for pregnancy that there's there's and I'll just read from the document. Um, there are no or limited amount of data, which is bad grammar. Um, from the use of COVID-19 mRNA vaccine BNT162B2, animal reproductive toxic toxicity studies have not been completed. The COVID-19 mRNA vaccine, with the crazy name, is not recommended during pregnancy. For women, for women of childbearing age, pregnancy should be excluded before vaccination. So if you, if you know you're pregnant, you shouldn't get vaccinated. Um, in addition, women of childbearing age should be advised to avoid pregnancy for at least two months after their second dose. So you need to get your first dose and then your second dose, and then you need to try to not get pregnant for the next two months. Um, for breastfeeding, it is unknown whether COVID-19, the mRNA vaccine from Pfizer, is excreted in human milk. Um, a risk to the newborns and infants cannot be excluded. So COVID-19 mRNA vaccine um, should not be used during breastfeeding. And then the, the last note there in that section, it says that it is unknown whether COVID-19 mRNA vaccine BNT162B2 has an impact on fertility. 
So there's been some stuff circulating. I, I know a number of parishioners have seen this and they've, they've forwarded it to me, some things circulating on the internet right now, um, suggesting that uh, former former head of, of respiratory something in Pfizer, as well as a, a doctor who kind of, a, a German doctor who's involved in public health um, have come out and asked the UK to, to, to stop um, the, the Pfizer vaccine because of concerns about whether it can cause infertility of indefinite duration. Now, this, uh, I, I'm not 100% certain about the validity of these claims as they are being stated on some of these websites. I know actually for a fact that some of the websites have been forwarded are stating them incorrectly. They're saying that the Pfizer vaccine actually contains um, a, a protein that is that is in the human placenta, and so you're being vaccinated against both the the COVID uh, the COVID nineteen the coronavirus spike protein, and also against human placental proteins. That is incorrect. Um, what what the it looks like the original document probably said, but the original document appears to have been pulled from the internet. So I don't know, <laughs> but it it looks more like what it probably said was. Um, that the spike protein that's being used in the Pfizer vaccine um, resembles at some level this protein that is found in, in the placenta. And so there's concerns that there may be some cross-reactivity. Now, Pfizer has actually, if I can find the correct tab, Pfizer has actually come out with a statement um, uh, saying that this isn't a problem. Um, I may not be able to find it. Um, if, if I could, are, are you perhaps saying that sure. because there's this, some connection with this protein and the placenta that if there were a pregnancy during the uh, actual course of vaccinations using Pfizer that that might affect the newborn within the, the placenta that around the... Um, Yes, uh, but it would it would also so if this is true, and again, I'm not I'm not certain that it is um, because the the sleuthing I was doing um, yesterday and today, trying to find out the origin of this statement um, and trying to find out you know what what actually um, what actually was was claimed, what actually you know what scientific basis does it have? Um, I, I was I was unable to find something conclusive about it. But, but if this is correct, um, then actually it, it, it could potentially cause indefinite problems with fertility or problems of indefinite duration. So not just if you were pregnant when you received the vaccine, but it could potentially prevent future pregnancies um, if, if the spike protein sufficiently resembles human placenta protein. Um, again, I'm not sure that this is accurate. So um, I don't want to raise undue alarm um, this, this would not be the first time that a vaccine, um, has been used that has, you know, sort of undisclosed sterilizing effects. Um, in, in, in the process of writing my book, I actually was in communication with Dr. Wilhelmine Nagare, who, um, is a Kenyan doctor, and he was one of the individuals who found that uh, some tetanus vaccine that was being targeted to women of childbearing age in Kenya was actually laced with HCG, which is a human protein. And again, you, you, when, you, when you administer tetanus toxoid in combination with HCG, you end up immunizing yourself against a protein that's necessary for pregnancy. And so you end up basically teaching, teaching the body 
that not only is tetanus a bad thing that I should make antibodies against, but so is this HCG protein. And so if you do happen to get pregnant, the baby will not be able to survive. Um, so they're, they're working currently on um, an, an alternative um, test that would verify that these women who received this vaccine did actually develop antibodies to HCG. Um, and I'm not sure what stage they're in of, of confirming that after the fact, but, but um, you know, there have been similar sort of vaccine sterilization campaigns operated by the World Health Organization in, in places like the Philippines um, and um, other places in Africa as well. Um, it, this, is, this goes all the way back to the 1970s. So for people to have concerns about this, there, this isn't unfounded um, per se, but, but the, the information that I'm hearing, it, I, I'm not yet convinced that, that it, it's actually um, accurate in, in terms of the way that they're describing how, how this might come about with the RNA vaccine. I think there are other more substantial concerns about the mRNA vaccine that, that are, are maybe um, a little bit more important to focus on right now. Okay. Just a couple other things before we ask questions or have questions asked by the people watching. Um, what about, we talked about injuries. I've heard that some of the trials uh, using individuals have been not easy, pretty brutal. Yeah. And then combine this with this claim. What does this claim mean that if you take this vaccine, you're 95% sure of never getting this, or if you do, it's gonna be like a walk in the park. What is this 95% effective rate? So both the, the difficulty of the testing and how it, it's not easy, this is not an easy vaccine to take. Right. It can cause some serious issues, or what is this 95% effective rate? Okay, so that's, that's two questions, and I, I feel like I'm having a little bit hard time tracking your questions and actually answering what you're asking. So if I forget, remind me. Um, but uh, so the, I'm actually, I have a, the document, um, this is posted on the FDA.gov website. And this is the document that was submitted by Pfizer and BioNTech about their COVID-19 vaccine in terms of the requesting the emergency use authorization. So in, in, uh, in their safety summary, um, they, they talk about adverse reactions. So these are things that happen that you know are negative. In the most common solicited adverse reactions, so these are the ones they're actually asking you to check and make sure you, you whether you have or not, were injection site reactions. So this is where you have like at the site that you have the injection, you might have redness or swelling or um, you know some kind of pain or something like that. And that was experienced by 84% of the participants. Um, fatigue was experienced by 63%, headaches by 55%, muscle pain by 38%, chills by 32%, joint pain by 24%, fever by 14%. And then, um, and so those are the, those are the, you know, considered less serious adverse reactions. So even um, CNN ran an article, I think it was CNN, but it was one of the major news networks that ran an article um, a few weeks ago saying, you know, People should really, physicians should really be warning their patients, like this vaccine is no walk in the park um, because otherwise they're afraid that people are going to get the first dose. They're going to experience some of these really negative side effects. They're going to not come back to get the second dose because it, it's not worth it to them. And so the article was kind of saying, you got you to warn people up front, this is going to be really rough because otherwise people won't come back to get their second dose. Now they continue and they say severe, severe adverse reactions occurred in 0% to 4.6% of participants. So that's kind of a wide, a wide range. Um, but, but serious adverse events are, are defined 
in a very particular way. So um, again, I just want to make sure I, I, I do this correctly. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this out of out of uh, out of what the CD says CDC says here. So they describe a serious adverse reaction as um, one of the following: a prolonged hospital stay, a severe life-threatening illness, a permanent disability, or death. So that's what constitutes a severe adverse reaction. So, you know, they're saying between zero and 4.6 of people, well, 0% would be great. 4.6, not so much. Um, that's far worse than, than the coronavirus itself. Um, so they, they said they were more frequent, these serious, serious reactions were more frequent after dose two than after dose one. And they were generally, generally less frequent in adults who were over 55 years of age so they had less than 2.8% there as compared to younger participants where they had um, less than 4.6%. So then they, they identified some specific adverse events that were of special interest. One was, I'm gonna maybe say this wrong, lymph, lymphadenop lymphadenopathy, which is a, an enlargement or, or, or um, a problem with your lymph nodes. And that was reported in 64%, 64 participants, not 64%. <laughs> and then uh, um, Bell's palsy, which is a, a temporary um, paralysis of the face, which kind of resembles the first sort of um, uh, symptoms of a stroke, where kind of half your face goes limp, in, in four participants. And so not in any participants who received the placebo, but in four participants who... Um, who didn't, who received the vaccine. And I believe in the 64% that had um, problems with their lymph nodes, uh, six of those were in the placebo group. So about 10% of that was in the placebo group, but the, the remainder of it was in the, the, the vaccinated group. So that was a, a significant um, event that they, they thought was worthy to report. Now, the Bell's palsy, um, let me look back at this again and just make sure I'm, I'm saying this correctly. Um, they said it was consistent with the expected background rate of Bell's palsy in the general population, but there was no Bell's palsy in the in the placebo group, so that's a little bit hard to reconcile there. And um, the the I think three of the four. I'm not. I'm not. I did read this at some point, but I'm not seeing this in this particular paragraph. But I think it was three of the four people with Bell's palsy were either not resolved or resolving still when they had the cutoff date for, for taking data. So only one of them had actually gone back to being non-paralyzed. Um, so that, that um, worries me because I think that, if, if I remember correctly, when I was reading about the Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, that facial paralysis actually was, was an indication. Um, one of the, the young women whose case studies I was reading, it was her first indication that something was wrong. So my concern is that some of these, these uh, temp temporary facial paralyses match the indicative of deeper neurological problems. Um, but again, there's like, there's not necessarily evidence to support that other than, you know, sort of the, the historical track record. So there was that, that question, then what was, what was the second part of your question? The, the, the notion that this, uh, that, that this particular COVID vaccine is 95% effective. Oh, 95% effective. Okay. So, um, <laughs> It's an interesting thing because a lot of people are asymptomatic. A lot of people right. really get through this without too much um, of right. a downtime. Uh, there, there's, there, there's a certain persons that uh, obviously a certain section of population that have trouble with this. 
But anyway, 95% effective rate is what they're telling us. So, so the problem with that data, which frustrates the life out of me as somebody who used to do research, they're not looking at all the people who received the vaccine and saying only 5% of them actually contracted coronavirus. That's not what they're looking at at all. They're looking at the number of people and out of the 43,000 people that they, that they tested with the vaccine and the placebo, they're looking at a group of 170. 170 is a very tiny in value for something that you're about to inject into 300, 300 million people. Yeah. yeah. Um, very, very tiny. Um, so looking at these 170 people and they're saying, okay, these are the 170 people who developed COVID-19. Now I'm saying that in, in quotes, not because I don't think people are getting strangely sick. I, I have heard, you know, stories that there is something strange about some people who are coming into clinics and that, that's, you know, you can't, you can't necessarily like write it off if somebody, if somebody's lips are turning blue in front of you because they're, they're deficient in oxygen, you know, but, but I'm saying that because I haven't read anywhere exactly what they're, they're using to determine what that means in the study. I don't know how tight those criteria are. I don't know how loose they are. So this is 170 people who have what are considered to be, to be more serious manifestations of infection with SARS-CoV-2, but I don't know specifically what those are. So that, that makes it hard to, for me to sort of develop a, a kind of a, a real opinion about what these data mean, but they're looking at these people and they're saying, okay, 95% of these 170 people who got worse symptoms, whatever that means, um, they didn't have the vaccine and they had the placebo. Therefore, the vaccine is 95% effective. The, that's mind-bogglingly not the way that you report results, um, because they're not looking at any of. The, they're not looking at you know tens of thousands of people who got vaccinated and saying, okay, did you actually contract the virus after receiving the vaccine? They're saying, okay, well, you received the you know the people who are are developing worse symptoms tend to 95% of them haven't received the vaccine. So the most that we can say is that based on an extremely small end value, based on data that's being interpreted in a very strange way, you're, you, you appear to be less likely to get severe respiratory symptoms if you've had the vaccine. And we're only looking at data from the last couple of months. So there, there are actually real concerns because most people don't realize that we have been working on coronavirus vaccines for 15 years. Now, this isn't some conspiracy theory like this virus was created and patented 20 years, you know, 10 years ago, and, and so we've been working on it since then. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about SARS. So, so SARS was the first um, coronavirus of international concern. Uh, or actually it's SARS-CoV, it causes the respiratory um, disease known as SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome. And it, vaccines, the first vaccine candidate began being tested in 2005. We still do not have a valid candidate vaccine for SARS. MERS, which is caused by another coronavirus, MERS-CoV, um, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, started to circulate, I believe in 2012, that's eight years ago. We still don't have a valid vaccine candidate for MERS. And there's two reasons for this. When you try to vaccinate against a coronavirus, two weird things happen. Um, one thing that can happen is called antibody-dependent enhancement. So you um, you get vaccinated, your immune system, you know, recognizes this coronavirus. You start making antibodies for it, but for some reason that we don't quite understand, 
Then when you get exposed to the real virus, you actually get worse symptoms that are mediated by your own antibodies against the coronavirus. Now this actually can cause death in the laboratory animals in which it was tested. And um, it's, it usually happens with um, inactivated virus vaccines, I think. And so the mRNA vaccine may not cause this particular type of problem, but it, but it has been a problem that's been noted with, um, with coronavirus vaccines. And it's, it's been associated with the spike protein. And so if, if we're going to stick genetic information in your body that's going to cause your body to make the spike protein and the spike protein is potentially associated with this antibody dependent enhancement and it it's it's also potentially associated with um a, a problem with the t helper two cells um where you actually end up with um uh it, so again a little bit more jargon but eosinophils are immune cells that are often involved in mediating mediating allergy and you can have what's called eosinic infiltration into your lungs. So you have a high concentration of these cells that are involved in mediating allergy in your lungs. Um, this is not a good place to have cells that are involved in mediating allergy because you have a lot of exposure to allergens through your lungs. So you can end up with inflammation and, and potentially permanent tissue damage um, as these eosinophils congregate. And you can, you can, that can happen in your lungs and in several other organs in your body. And this has been also been observed following um, vaccination with, with SARS and MERS candidate vaccines. So um, that there's, there's, you know, potentially some, some really severe um, possible side effects that, that could go on just with this category of vaccines as well. Again, I think I, I think I lost the thread of your original question, Father. I'm so sorry. That's all right. I guess we, as we end, um, maybe you could, uh, in one minute, or one minute. 30 seconds, is there money tied up with this? Yes. And secondly, would you ever take the COVID vaccine, even if it would relieve many inconveniences, even if it freed you up to travel Europe in the future? Would you ever take the COVID vaccine? I, I, I can't travel to Europe, Father. I can't walk. Um, <laughs> so, um, no. Uh, uh, so, um, yeah, there, there, there is money tied up in this. So, at, at this moment. Um, the U.S. government has contracted for approximately $2 billion with Pfizer to deliver 100 um, million doses of vaccine. So that's about $20 per vaccine that the government is willing to provide to Pfizer to be able to provide these vaccines to, to frontline workers and you know, all the, those sort of people you talked about at the beginning of, of this talk, Father. Um, that, that money is dependent on you know, the vaccine actually being approved, and it's dependent on you know, the, the 100 million doses being delivered. Now, they're looking at uh, potentially contracting for an additional 500 million more. So that's enough to, because it's, it's, it's 300,000 or 300 million people, which means you need 600 million vaccines. So 600 million vaccines times $20 is, is $12 billion. Mm -hmm. Right. They, because, so, they two, they, because they need to do two courses, right? They need to course. Yeah, two two, courses. yeah it's two doses. The, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna both are two doses. Okay. Um, so there's potentially really big money on the table. And, and would I take it? Um, no, no, Father, I would not. I come from a, a, a long family history of autoimmune disease. And uh, three, three of my siblings have, have uh, serious problems with autoimmune disease. I, I would never take... Um, I would never take any vaccine that was associated in, in, in any way with the development or potential development of autoimmune disease. I, I would rather uh, be heavily inconvenienced than have to live with that. I, I've watched um, 
particularly my my next youngest brother and my baby sister really suffer from from the the chronic conditions that they have to deal with on a daily basis so yes so i think that um uh, we're, we're kind of getting kind of late so i won't be able to take any questions tonight but it's wonderful uh, uh some people have uh written some 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 things on, on our uh, uh q a uh, section thanking pam and also congratulating her on her book, uh, which of course has to do with uh, vaccination. So remember it's from the colbaycenter.org, Colbay as in Maximilian Colbay, K-O-L-B-E, center.org. It's called Vaccinations Catholic Perspective. So that is available. And uh, it's something that I think that would be good to have on, on one's library shelf for sure. Uh, so that someone also mentioned on the Q and A, the notion of um, uh, the highwire.com. If you ever have looked at that particular website, I guess it did have uh, some good programming on this matter, including, and maybe Pam would know or heard of, heard of this doctor, Dr. Wolfgang Wodarg. Um, yes, that, that's the German doctor that I, I referenced which, earlier. Which uh, yeah. uh, Pam, remember, talked about that the notion that uh, this PCR test that, that, you know, to get whether or not you have COVID or not, um, mm -hmm. I guess the inaccuracy is, is just unbelievable in that test. So that was brought about. So that might be something to look at too. But I do want to thank Pam for uh, being on this particular program to help us. And it's very timely because COVID-19 vaccines are, I mean, as soon as this Friday will be available perhaps for frontline workers and the, the very elderly and so forth, who uh, obviously are more, 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 more uh, susceptible perhaps to this particular uh, virus. But I think a lot of things were told to us tonight that help us to uh, maybe make proper decisions in terms of um, what might be somewhat morally objectionable, uh, the fact that, as Pam so rightly said, that the, the bodies, uh, the, the cell lines, these, these, these cells from aborted fetuses are still being used at least to be a place in which there is experimentation and testing, if not actual production of the vaccines, in some cases with AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, but even with Pfizer and Moderna, we seem to be at least using these uh, remains of human beings as test labs, which is not a proper treatment of a deceased person. Um, and then also her wonderful thoughts uh, regarding, um, uh, you know, the, the notion of vaccines and, and, and some of the things that, you know, the, 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 the consequences that can happen, the injuries that sometimes happen through these vaccinations as well. Uh, and obviously at the very, very end, Pam gave us a very short and sweet answer. Would you ever be <laughs> willingly vaccinated? Nope, nope, nope. No. And again, Pam, this is not just for the moral objectionable aspect of it, but no, this is, I mean, even, even if it was completely morally licit, even if it was completely, you know, 100% moral, I mean, the, the things that I've learned since I started doing research for the book, um, at, you know, at this point, because of that, because of the biological problems with it at, at an individual level, at a population level, um, 
you know, I certainly would, would never willingly choose to be vaccinated for something that wasn't a serious, um, serious issue. You know, if I got bit by a rabid dog, I'd get the rabies vaccine, you know, that's a serious issue, but certainly wouldn't get the COVID vaccine. <laughs> Very good. I thank you again, Pam, and again, coalbasecenter.org, uh, Pam's book, Pam Acker's book, uh, again, Vaccinations Catholic Perspective. It's available now. Please get it. Um, support the uh, Colby Creation Center. Support Pam. Support um, uh, Hugh Owen and his work. Uh, this is all, and we didn't get a, get a chance to talk about it, but there is a connection here with evolution, which we didn't get a chance to, but maybe in the future okay. talk we could. But uh, let's end with a prayer, uh, and we'll say the glory be in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the sons of the Holy Ghost. As, as it, it was in the beginning, beginning is now, never shall be, world without end. Amen. Without end. Amen. And a blessing. Benedictio invitentis patris et filii, et spiritus sanctus et supervos, et maniat semper. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Thank you.